the iPod, but lots of record stores had a business. But that was considered a good rather than a bad thing. In mid-century antitrust, not so clear. Apple could have been um, deemed liable for having so thoughtlessly, you know, harmed all these record stores all across America. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing the Chicago School of Antitrust and whether it should be reassessed for the modern economy. We're joined by Timothy Muris, professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School and former chairman of the FTC, Jonathan Nectarline, partner at Sidley Austin and former general counsel at the FTC, and Maurice Stuckey, professor of law at the University of Tennessee Law School. The Chicago School of Antitrust is thought of as a revolution in the way the antitrust laws were interpreted and enforced that took place in the mid-20th century. Today we'll discuss what the Chicago School truly stands for, its lasting contributions to the field of antitrust, and whether it should be reassessed or even abandoned in the modern digital economy. Thank you very much to our guests for joining us. Starting with you, Mr. Nectarlime, what is the overarching purpose of the antitrust laws? I mean, the fundamental purpose of antitrust law is to rein in exercises of market power that have the effect of reducing competition and thus diminish the interests of consumers in a well-functioning economy. So your answer implies that the antitrust laws are generally aimed at promoting the interests of consumers, that they protect the competitive process, but that the ultimate beneficiary should be consumers. That's an idea that's typically associated with the Chicago School of Antitrust, right? So what is the Chicago School of Antitrust and how has it influenced the antitrust laws? Well, as we say in our paper, um, that influence is sometimes overstated. The, the What we currently consider the consumer welfare standard originated in a set of um, observations made by a variety of non-Chicago academics in the first part of the 20th century in response to what they perceived as intellectually chaotic enforcement of the antitrust laws. And they helped elevate the notion that the fundamental principle of antitrust, the fundamental purpose is to advance the interests of consumers rather than the interest of competitors as such. Obviously, competitor interests are important to the extent that competitors are needed for competition and thus to help consumers. But there were a variety of contexts in which enforcers cracked down on large companies for doing things like lowering prices and uh, prosecuted those larger companies, not because they were doing anything bad for consumers, but because they were putting less efficient companies out of business. Um, so the consumer welfare standard originated before the modern Chicago school. And we talk about antitrust scholars at, at Chicago who had great influence before what we currently call the Chicago school, but the modern Chicago school started in the 50s. And what they did is they took the same insight. Um, the antitrust is for the protection of competition and um, not competitors as such. And they amplified it in various ways. They applied economic rigor to it. But a number of Chicago economists also adopted certain doctrinal approaches to the consumer welfare standard that they never reached consensus on. So in your view, the Chicago school didn't invent the idea that the antitrust laws should serve the interests of consumers. That was a pre-existing idea that the Chicago school may be reinforced. So what then are the core ideas that the Chicago School of Antitrust stands for? When we talk about what the Chicago School is today, it's important to unpack these three different strands of what people could mean when they say the Chicago School, or for that matter, what people could mean when they talk about the consumer welfare standard. And we go through those three questions in our paper. And 
Just in a nutshell, they are these. First, what are the ultimate objectives of antitrust? And as I said, the consumer welfare standard uh, embraces the interests of consumers as the paramount objective. The second question is, what is the correct mode of analyzing whether we're doing a good job of meeting that objective? And the Chicago School in the 50s and 60s and 70s made great contributions to understanding how to quantify aspects of consumer welfare and how to analyze whether particular antitrust rules were achieving the desired ends. The third question, though, is not what I would consider core Chicago School um, and certainly not core consumer welfare standards. Um, instead, these are questions about what doctrinal rules should we make to promote consumer welfare? What assumptions should we make about the way that markets work? And there, as you know, there were a variety of Chicago schools who believed that market failures were very rare and that antitrust should very rarely intervene in markets. And part of the, part of the purpose of our paper is to sort of unpack the concept of, con- of the consumer welfare standard and the Chicago school and focus on the first two of those, the commitment to consumer interests and the consumer economics as the right technique for determining whether you're meeting your objectives versus a lot of economic assumptions and proposed doctrinal rules that people sometimes associate with the Chicago school, but that are not really integral to the consumer welfare standard. Okay. So if that's the Chicago school, Professor Muris, how would you characterize the anti-Chicago school or the counter view? There was an argument that is being replayed now by populism about whether antitrust ought to be more than consumer welfare. And the populist wanted antitrust to protect competitors. And indeed, there was uh, important and nefarious competitor protection statute passed, the Robinson-Palman Act. Uh, and it was passed in reaction to the growth of, of chain stores, uh, particularly the, the great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which John and I have written a paper about. And it became the largest retailer in the United States for 40 years. And the statute uh, became the, the bad apple of the, of, of the antitrust world. And it was defanged by the courts and scholars, but it took, it took a long time to do that. The people who led that change were people not af- affiliated with Chicago, but people who believed that antitrust should not be engaged in, in competitor protection. Now, there is important steps that the Chicago economists and scholars took. Uh, one of the most important ones was they convinced uh, uh, other people that the evidence showed that something called the simple market concentration doctrine which was a fear that market concentration at levels that virtually no one would think is a problem. It was considered indeed a problem in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And the Chicago people showed that was bad economics and they did it through uh, empirical evidence. Uh, but that was an argument among people applying the consumer welfare standard. But once they'd won that argument, the people within the Chicago school disagreed on on what to do next. For example, merger policy would go after mergers in very unconcentrated markets. For example, the marginal merger, and by marginal merger, I mean the one that they would attack, was something like you were reducing the number of viable competitors from eight to seven. 
the Obama administration uh, reduced that number from four to three. But if you looked uh, at the Chicago school after the the, the triumph of, of, of destroying the simple market concentration doctrine, the Chicago school was all over the map. So you mentioned that one of the primary innovations of the Chicago school was the idea that the government shouldn't intervene uh, to stop firms from competing when their behavior is benefiting consumers but harming their competitors or, or even putting their competitors out of business. Why is it so difficult to reconcile the interests of competitors with the interests of consumers? Uh, wouldn't it be possible to consider both um, and maybe you know balance the interests to, to everyone's benefit? And, and why, is, why is that so difficult? Uh, there was a tension, there was an unavoidable incoherence in antitrust so long as the government sought to balance the interests of consumers against the interests of aggrieved competitors. Sometimes the interests of aggrieved competitors are consistent with those of consumers. If um, someone uses anti-competitive means to exclude all competitors from the market and then raises its rates to monopoly levels, that's obviously bad for consumers. So these are not necessarily intention. But there are lots of cases where Consumers are served well by fierce competition presented by a large firm. Uh, and the fierce competition, as it is supposed to, has effects on other competitors, and sometimes it drives them from the market. Uh, the AMP example that Tim mentioned is a good example. This was um, – I actually used to work at the AMP, and the AMP used to be a big fixture in American society, and no one remembers it today. Uh, but the it was you know the largest retailer of its time, and it uh, was sufficiently large that it was able to buy produce and other groceries um, at discounts that smaller gro- grocery stores couldn't couldn't achieve. And they were also able to lower prices to their consumers. They were able to avoid middlemen. They they had their own supply networks. They didn't have to pay a markup to to middlemen to get food from the farms to the grocery stores. And the result of all this is that AMP consistently sold groceries to consumers at lower rates than the mom and pop grocers down the street could sell. And the result of that, of course, is a lot of those mom and pop grocery stores went out of business. And yet there is no way in which consumers were harmed by any of this because AMP wasn't then jacking up its prices in response to some monopoly position because it was easy enough to enter into the food business. Um, and so it knew that it would have to charge low rates in perpetuity. So consumers were always better off, competitors worse off. And the fundamental uh, misjudgment of uh, antitrust authorities when they approached retail competition in, in mid-century America was to think that it was more important to protect the s- small, less efficient companies than the ultimate interests of consumers. And a number of people, including Don Turner, observed that this created – an incoherence at the core of antitrust because you can't both serve consumer interests and the interests of competitors when uh, the competitors are harmed only because they're less efficient. So I definitely understand that it may be difficult to reconcile the interests of consumers with those of competitors or other economic interests uh, and that the Chicago School made the choice to consider exclusively consumer interests. Uh, But I'm wondering... Why are we confident that that's what the antitrust laws were actually intended to do, to just consider consumer interests? I mean, the the antitrust statutes, you know, namely the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, are pretty broad in, in their language. They don't give a lot of specifics, and they, they certainly don't mention consumers. 
wouldn't it be possible to construe those statutes to just outlaw really big and really powerful companies, just big is bad, period, and not consider the interests of consumers specifically? You know, couldn't Congress have adopted? I mean, couldn't couldn't we have construed the antitrust laws to mean something else? And sure, you you can construe them to the, the statute is the Sherman Act in particular is is very terse in its language, and and the courts did construe them in many different ways back in mid century. But the problem is that ultimately any legal regime has to be stable and predictable to some extent. Obviously, there's going to be some unpredictability. But you can't have deep logical contradictions at the heart of statutory interpretation for the statute to work. And the problem with mid-century antitrust was that antitrust enforcers could not make up their minds whether it was a good thing or a bad thing for a consumer, for big companies to offer consumers really good deals that had the effect of putting the pinch on smaller and less, less efficient companies. And there's no way to run an economy where, you know, if you're an antitrust lawyer and you're counseling your clients, they're saying, we want to cut consumers a good deal, but we're worried it's going to put some of our competitors out of business. You want to be able to give a straightforward answer about whether or not they can go ahead and do the price cut or whether or not they can go ahead and introduce the disruptive new product that's going to put a bunch of people out of business. For example, the iPod put lots of record stores out of business. But that was considered a good rather than a bad thing. In mid-century antitrust, not so clear. Apple could have been um, deemed liable for having so thoughtlessly you know, harmed all these record stores all across America. And, and it's the stability. Look, John, who's a, who, who's a wonderful writer in our previous article, which I mentioned, the one, the one on, on, on A&P, Part of it was this marvelous paragraph on, uh, you know, why Silicon Valley arose in the United States uh, and with these wonderful benefits for consumers. It was because of the stability of the law and not just the stability, but the law is willing to tolerate this kind of change and innovation. And that's a, and, and that is uh, another example of American exceptionalism. So the Chicago School is also often associated with like a conservative approach to antitrust, like a non-interventionist approach where we generally trust the market and believe that, you know, government interference in the market is generally going to cause more harm than good. So do you think it's fair to say that the Chicago School generally lines up pretty well with conservative economic ideology and politics, or do you view it as a nonpartisan issue? But what's interesting about this is that in Bill, shout out to Bill Kavasik, who uh, is writing an article on the same issue, same symposium issue here. As Bill Kavasik explains, he actually did his own little study of court of appeals decisions involving antitrust that on, involving panels where at least one member had been nominated by the Carter, Senior Bush, or Clinton administrations. He, he did a little survey of uh, antitrust decisions, and he mapped how various judges voted based on the party affiliation uh, the, of the president who, who nominated them. And it turned out that even though, as you would expect, Republican judges tended to vote in supposedly conservative ways in antitrust cases somewhat more often than Democratic appointees did, um, the judge who voted by far the most conservatively on antitrust issues across the board was Stephen Breyer. And it illustrates a, 
an important point, which is that clear analysis of antitrust issues can cut across party lines. That is true both for people who take a strict view of antitrust and who normally presume that intervention creates more harm than good. And Stephen Breyer has fallen into that category, even though he's a liberal otherwise. Populism also cuts against uh, across party boundaries. Um, so a lot of the populists you hear from are associated with the left, but there's really no louder populist voice in antitrust issues than our current president. Turning to you, Professor Stuckey, you have a different take on the consumer welfare standard and the Chicago School more generally, right? And in the past, you've written that the consumer welfare standard is too narrow to address the issues in the modern economy, and we need to think of a broader interpretation of the antitrust laws for them to be properly enforced. So in your words, what would you say is wrong with the consumer welfare standard? Why isn't it equipped to deal with antitrust problems? Well, it hasn't provided the predictability, the accuracy, the transparency, and the objectivity that was promised. And that there, first of all, what we, one of the important things that we saw in the empirical data is that for many countries, there are both economic and non-economic goals. And despite the evangelization of some, they haven't yet convinced most of the countries around the world that antitrust should have only one economic goal, and that economic goal should be narrowly defined. So to the extent that we want to say that we've achieved success on that, that is an empirically barren assertion. So what's the evidence that the consumer welfare standard hasn't been working? Sure. I mean, there are multiple ways to look at this, right? And one way is you're looking at dynamic innovation. And one of the things that we heard about is that innovation levels are suboptimal in, in the United States. The other would be a concern that Senator Sherman talked about in 1890 and remains relevant today is wealth and um, income inequality and how that has grown. And then a third component would be uh, workers that despite significant productivity gains is how little that the share that's going to labor um, versus the, the share that's going to um, the companies themselves. And on other like economic studies that look at how the increase in profits is likely attributable to market power and not necessarily efficiencies and, and the like. So if you believe that the consumer welfare standard is ultimately too narrow to properly enforce the antitrust laws, what would you advocate replacing it with? I know that you've recently written a paper proposing a standard called the effective competition standard. So what would that entail? Okay. So first, the, the standard uh, for your for your listeners is that the agencies and courts shall use the preservation of competition market structure that protects individuals, purchasers, consumers, producers, Second, preserves opportunities for competitors. Third, promotes individual autonomy and well-being. And fourth, uh, disperses private power as the principal objective of the federal antitrust laws. And each of those four components you can find in the legislative history as well as the Supreme Court interpretation of that legislative history. So it's not really that radical. It sort of restores antitrust to its legislative aims. How it differs from the consumer welfare standard is several ways. First, under the consumer welfare standard, you would have to show how a substantial less that competition would have to be lessened 
to such a degree that it impacts consumers' welfare. What we would argue is that the substantial lessening of competition by itself suffices. You don't then have to show how will this affect consumers in terms of prices or output or some other variable. What do you say to people who think, let's cabin antitrust law, have it a limited field just interested in protecting competition for the benefit of consumers, and leave other interests uh, to other fields of law? For example, you mentioned antitrust law should uh, promote individual autonomy and well-being. Uh, it seems that maybe there's other bodies of law that could do that. Maybe that's not an antitrust problem. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in one sense, that's true, that antitrust is not, a, is not an elixir for every societal ailment. I think we all agree to that. But I think that there is a naivete to believe that we can create silos in the law. I mean, think about, for example, deception and how many different types of statutes go after deception. We have the state unfair deceptive acts and practices. We have the Lanham Act. We have common law fraud. We have um, securities violations involving deception. And all that shows is that each one by itself is not sufficient to eliminate this. We need to have them. And so they're complements. And so when there is then the nexus to competition, then antitrust can be an effective weapon. It can provide structural relief that you might not have then under a Lanham Act violation. Um, it may look at more of a macro image of what sort of impact that this is having on the economy. And so Rather than looking at them as substitutes, we should look at them as complements and that each can play an important role in, in addressing this issue from their vantage point. I'm wondering how much of your view that the Chicago School is outdated and ill-equipped to deal with issues in the modern economy comes from the idea that the tech giants like Amazon, Google, and Facebook pose a unique kind of threat to competition. So in your view... What is so unique about those companies and why do, might they require a new antitrust paradigm? Right. And, and so here, here's the state of play. Um, so let's start off with uh, Bork. And Bork said that, you know, a search engine is free. Competition is a click away. There is no antitrust problem. And that was originally the view of, of, of a small group, but a, a loud group. And what, what we've seen just in the last few years is this evolution in thought. And what we've come to the conclusion is that dataopolies, even though that their product or service is ostensibly free, that nonetheless they impose significant economic, social, and political risks. And that these risks not only may affect our wallets, but they can affect our individual autonomy as well as our democracy. So there is mounting concern then that Facebook is not just a sort of monopoly like A&P in terms of raising price, that A&P was not in your home suggesting to you movies to watch, books to read, uh, videos to, um, to enjoy, that they're not there with a search engine that can help direct you to some sources or others. They're not there affecting your moods and the like, that the data opolies can, right? So there, well, when you come to that, you realize that 
the risks are, are quite significant. Professor Miras, back to you. I know that you've spoken about your view that big tech has not been harmful to consumers and certainly doesn't require a new antitrust paradigm. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what's your the basis for that view? And what do you think has encouraged this new popular view that you know the tech giants like Amazon or Google require a new uh, antitrust way of thinking? A lot of what's happening here is the angst over the 2008 uh, Great Recession is causing people to turn around and look for villains. But I, you know, I find this very odd. I, I read an article by a good economist the other day who was talking about how how the tech giants have harmed our society. And I've, I've got my iPhone next to me. I'm receiving a package from uh, uh, Amazon today. I will use, uh, uh, you know, Google. I mean, I don't do Twitter or Facebook, but but the, the tech giants have, have changed people's lives and brought us enormous benefits. That doesn't mean that they can't have have caused problems. Uh, and, you know, John and I both uh, thought that the, at least I think we both thought that the Microsoft case uh, as it came down and decided was a good uh, decision. And, but, you know, to brand this whole class of companies that have provided these enormous benefits as, as malefactors is, is ironic to say the least. So we've spoken at length about what the Chicago School stands for, in particular the Consumer Welfare Standard. Now I was hoping to talk about the other major contribution that Professor Muris and Mr. Nectarline you spoke about for the Chicago School, namely that economics is the means by which we analyze antitrust problems. I'm curious if that's a good idea. So uh, a lot of scholars, including Professor Stuckey, have been critical of over-reliance on economics and antitrust. In particular, antitrust law often relies on what we call the rule of reason that, you know, is a kind of a loose balancing standard that requires a lot of empirical analysis to, to get at the question of whether conduct is anti-competitive. So I'm curious if economics is really necessary or, or ha- have we gone too far in requiring so much economic rigor in antitrust that you know, makes antitrust litigation prohibitively expensive. Maybe it discourages plaintiffs from bringing good suits or discourage the antitrust agencies from enforcing the law. So, so is economics crucial to, to antitrust analysis and enforcement? Yes. Uh, well, if you adopt the consumer welfare standard, then economics, I mean, you have to be thinking about what makes consumers better off or worse off. And in a commercial setting, that almost always involves economics for the same reason the people who run companies need economics to understand what they're doing. Um, that doesn't mean the economics needs to be particularly obscure. I mean, you and I can understand what it means when we say it's okay for a big company to lower its prices to the extent that it puts really small, inefficient companies out of business, but there's still going to be enough competition left. The consumers uh, will see only low prices in the future rather than higher prices. Sometimes the economic issues are quite a bit more abstruse. I was involved in the AT&T Time Warner uh, merger litigation last year, and there were a variety of economic models that the government put on that you know are um, complicated, uh, but not so complicated that they're beyond the competence of courts to understand. Um, I think you're right. I mean, once you accept consumer welfare as the uh, foundational principle of antitrust, it sort of follows that economics will be the handmaiden to to that 
inquiry. Um, if that's not your fundamental approach, then what you're left with is sort of intuition. Um, if your fundamental approach is, oh, let's just balance a bunch of things uh, like consumer interests versus the interests of small companies to earn a healthy profit. Plus, we want to make sure that we constrain the political power of um, large companies. We want to use antitrust rather than some other mechanism as a tool for doing that. If you, if you start embracing a multi-factor test, particularly when some of those factors are in direct opposition to each other um, – what you're left with is just sort of gut instinct that rules from case to case. And that's what we saw in mid-century antitrust. We saw just total chaos in the precedent. And uh, it was impossible to counsel companies on what they should be doing because every case, <laughs> every case was decided without recourse to predictable rules. Professor Stuckey, back to you. So you've been very critical of the heavily econed rule of reason. And you have, you've proposed substituting presumptions about whether conduct is legal or illegal, instead of falling back to a rule of reason analysis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those presumptions would look like? So one of the problems that we assess is it the is the rule of reason part of the problem. I mean, the criticism is that if you then have the restraint subject to the rule of reason, it's just fails on so many different levels under the rule of law that agencies are not necessarily going to invest in the resources. I mean, it is a significant commitment of time and effort to bring a uh, case under the rule of reason, and you have no assurance of, 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 of the outcome. Second component is that it acknowledges that antitrust has, besides economic, social and political objectives. And then third, what this standard does is that it recognizes that we can't necessarily rely on an incoherent consumer welfare standard and an unwieldy rule of reason standard as well. That is a marriage in hell. And so the other com important component of the effective competition standard is to then shift to legal presumptions that are clear enough for lawyers to explain to their clients. <laughs> and then second would be administrable by both the agencies and the courts. And that's Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLrev. You can find more episodes of Briefly at Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Thank you to our guests for joining us, and tune in next time for our discussion of whether law schools are bad for democracy.